Uh, I don't know how you are finding lockdown number three, but for me personally, I'm finding it the hardest um, of all three of the lockdowns. I'm not quite sure why. I'm not sure if it just feels harder because I've forgotten how hard the first two were, um, but it certainly does feel tough. And more than ever, because of that, I've been needing God to encourage me. And the, one of the ways that I've been thinking about this time is a little bit, uh, it's a little bit like climbing a mountain. And uh, Mike and I have climbed, would you believe it, a couple of mountains together. We climbed Snowdon, I had a great time in the cafe at the top. And we climbed Scarfell Pike, which was, which was a tougher climb, even though it's a bit smaller than Snowdon for us, it was a harder climb. And I still have this photo of Mike and I at what we thought was the top of Scarfell Pike. We were there and it was a really foggy, misty day. And we, we got to what we thought was the top and we got this photo of us sort of celebrating. And then some walkers came past and told us that the top was a bit further up. So we had to, <laughs> we had to carry on. <laughs> we had to do it again. We found the next top, we did the same pose. Yes, we did. Uh, next on our list is obviously Mount Everest. We're gonna, once we're allowed to go there, we're gonna go there. But um, I remember there was sort of the bit where we thought we'd got to the point and then we had to go to what the actual point was. And because it was so foggy and we were a bit discouraged, uh, we just trudged along. And what they have on mountains to sort of show you the way is they have these, these what they call cairns, which are really just stacks of stones. And um, I think the idea is that you get to one and, and the idea is you can see the other one. Uh, even though you can't really see the path, you can see the other one wherever it is in the distance and you can walk to that one. And then when you get to that one, you can make it to the next one. And they're really just a guide so that when everything is foggy and unclear, you know which way to go. Um, for, for us, I think certainly for me, at the end of the other two lockdowns, it thought, maybe this is it, maybe things are, are gonna get easier now. And it feels like in many respects, they've got a little bit harder. And although we know that there will be an end, we're still very much in the fog. And I have, uh, I came across a passage of scripture just a couple of weeks ago when I was having a bad day. And for me in it, I've just found some resources. It's a passage that I've, I've read many times. I, I'm sure unless you're very new to church, you would have come across it. Um, but I found some cairns in it, as it were, some, some markers that have helped me navigate the fog of the last few weeks. And the passage is Philippians chapter four. I'm just going to read starting in verse four. Paul writes this. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I just want to pick three stacks of stones, as it were, three things that are something solid for us in the midst of all the confusion. The first is how Paul begins, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And when we hear, um, certainly for me anyway, when I hear a, a sentence like that, a verse like that, at a time like this, it can be tempting to dismiss it. And um, certainly as we've listened to what people 
who are part of our church family are going through over the last few weeks. We've had numerous Zoom calls with different groups of people uh, and we've heard how hard it is in so many respects. Now, obviously there's good things going on as well, but we've heard how parents feel like it's Groundhog Day, day after day after day. When, when is it gonna end? People who are running businesses and just the stress, the amount of stress that they've been under and the concern for their employees, the concern just to provide for their families. Obviously those who are in healthcare and who are teachers um, feeling incredibly weary. And, and we hear all of that and it can be tempting off the back of all of the stuff that's so tough to dismiss a verse that tells us to, to rejoice in the Lord and to say to ourselves, well, maybe that's for, that's for another season. It can't be for this. It can't be for when it's this hard. I want to do that. There's a part of me that wants to do it, but the thing that stops me is understanding the context that that verse is written in. So Paul is writing the letter to the Philippians and he's writing it um, when he's under arrest. He's under house arrest in Rome. His life up until this point has been the opposite of a bed of roses. Uh, he, he writes elsewhere about his sufferings and we read about it in his adventures in the book of Acts, how he was shipwrecked multiple times, how he was imprisoned again and again, how in so many of the cities he went just to tell them the good news about Jesus, he ended up being driven out, literally driven out. There was a riot or, or something happened. Uh, on more than one occasion, he was whipped, uh, you know, strapped to a post and had the flesh ripped off his back. At one point, he was stoned and left for dead. They beat him up so badly, they thought he was actually dead. And here he is again, and, and he knows that he's going to be on trial before the emperor and that his life is hanging in the balance. And ultimately, what tradition tells us is that he was executed. 63, 64 AD, he was beheaded. So he never, he never got out of this jail. He's writing it from there. And... Uh, and it's almost as if, I don't know if he did this or not, but it's almost as if he says, rejoice in the Lord. And then it's like he pauses. And he just thinks about where he is. He thinks about the fact that he's chained to a guard. He considers the fact that um, he could be executed any time. Perhaps he wonders and thinks about the, the, the young church that there is in Philippi and the fact that for those people, not only do they have the trouble and the challenge of the fragility of life in the city that they were living in, but now they've given their lives to Jesus. They've become Christians. They also have the, the acts of persecution hanging above them. He knows they're going to have troubles because they've said yes to following Jesus. It's almost as if he considers all of that and then he says, I will say it again, rejoice. I understand everything that's hard. I understand everything that could go wrong. And I say to you again, rejoice. And uh, if there's ever a time to remind ourselves what we have in him, what we've received in the gospel, and to choose deliberately and intentionally to rejoice in that it's this time. Jesus tells a story in Matthew chapter 13, and he's trying to communicate to us what the kingdom of heaven is like. And the story is the story of a pearl merchant, this guy who is an expert when it comes to pearls. He knows a good pearl from a bad pearl. He knows a great pearl from a good pearl. And he goes to, as it were, a market where it's just pearls on sale. He's looking for something special. 
And as he's looking through the different um, batches of pearls, Jesus says he comes across this one particular pearl that is a once in a lifetime pearl. This is a world class pearl. It's far greater than just a great pearl. This is a phenomenal pearl. And this guy who is the expert is the only one that knows its value. He's the only one who can see what it's worth. And so he picks it out of the pile and he holds it up to the owner of the shop and he says, how much for this one? Now the owner of the shop knows it's a good pearl. Um, He can see the guy wants it. And so he asks for a high price, but it's only the pearl merchant who really gets what this pearl is worth. So, so the shop owner, he asks for a high price and he names a sum and the sum just happens to be the entire net worth of this pearl merchant. Straight away, the pearl merchant goes, liquidates all his assets, comes back and buys the pearl. And he leaves that market with that pearl in his hand, having impoverished himself in order to get it. And Jesus basically tells us in the story, he leaves knowing that he has just made the deal of his life. Because that pearl is worth a thousand times more than his net worth ever was. Jesus says that the guy leaves with that pearl rejoicing, having given up all of everything he had, but gaining this pearl, he leaves rejoicing. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like, he says. And for us as his followers, for us as his people, um, that's what we gain when we come to know him. He is Jesus himself. He is the pearl. And to come into relationship with him, we give up everything. We give up our old life and our old ways. We surrender ourselves to him, but we gain infinitely more in who he is. And to live like this is not to pretend that life isn't hard and that it's not full of struggle. One of the things that I find um, incredibly comforting and challenging when I read some of the scriptures is the fact that they do live in that tension. So elsewhere, Paul talks about how we are sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. But, but it's the always rejoicing bit that I know I need to practice. And the way that I, I want to grow in practicing it is reminding myself day after day after day that I have gained that which matters the most. That I've been discovered, found by, captured by a God of love who hounded me and chased me until I said yes to him. And how I can never lose him. Whatever else we lose, we can never lose him. Choosing to rejoice. How do we do it? I think it looks different for different ones of us, but find a way. Maybe it's just sitting with the scriptures for 10 minutes in a day and just fixing uh, our focus on him. Perhaps it's sitting in stillness and just inviting him to be there. Maybe it's worshipping him, singing aloud, but find a way of rejoicing in him. That's the first marker through the fog. A second one is what Paul says when he says, present your requests to God. And um, again, I'm thinking of this time a little bit like altitude training. Um, Cyclists and and athletes, when they want to get really fit, they go up to high altitude where the oxygen level is thin. They train at that level. Their bodies get used to functioning on less oxygen so that then when they come back down again, they're in a fitter, healthier place uh, and they can function at a much higher level. And for us, I think in a similar way, if we can learn to rejoice in these days, then man, are we going to find it easier when we come out of this? Are we going to be healthier as Jesus' people? 
And in the same way, if we can learn to pray, to present our requests to God in this time, it stands us in such a good place for the future. Present your requests, Paul says. And really, it's how do we navigate through this crisis? We pray our way through it. One request at a time, one day at a time. We pray our way through it. One of the things that stops me in my own prayer life with prayer is I don't feel like I'm any good at it, to be honest. Um, I, I feel inadequate so often when I come to pray and then I spend half the prayer time feeling like I'm not doing a very good job of it and worrying about whether I'm praying properly. And one of the things that has really helped me in the last few weeks was actually reading the book that Mike talked about, Pray in the Spirit, because in that book, he actually addresses that. And he says, look, even Paul, the apostle, says in Romans chapter 8 that we don't know how to pray as we ought. And we are weak in our prayers, but the Spirit helps us in our weakness. One of the points he makes from that is that even Paul, the great apostle himself, felt weak in prayer. Even Paul felt inadequate in prayer. And he kind of makes the point that really, to an extent, we will always feel inadequate when we come to prayer. And, and for me, I found that incredibly freeing. What it, what it did for me in my spirit is it made me say, do you know what, stuff it. If I'm always gonna feel like a beginner, then that's okay. I'm just gonna do it anyway. Bring my requests. And the way that Paul puts it is he says, we do that in the context of petitioning, praising, thanksgiving, rejoicing basically, celebrating him. When we celebrate him, it, it's so much easier to give our request to him because what we're doing as we're celebrating is we're putting at the forefront of our hearts and the forefront of our minds the truth about who he is. So we rejoice in his strength, we rejoice in his wisdom, we rejoice in his power, but above all, we rejoice in his love. And when we spend time rejoicing in his love, reveling in it, savoring it, then do you know what? Bringing our requests becomes the natural next step. When we understand he cares for us, we give him our cares. And again, um, we can sometimes doubt that and we can question that. And that's where I think for each of us, the best thing we can do is just come back to the simple truth of the gospel. Imagine uh, this. Imagine you were able to be a fly on a wall whilst uh, a woman was pregnant and you saw her go through all the challenges of pregnancy and then you were a fly on the wall while she went through the agony of labour and then you also were able to watch as she negotiated all the challenges of having a newborn baby, learning to change nappies and night feeds and sleep deprivation. And, and you were there watching when she sent her child off to school for the first time and you saw the anxiety in her face as she was concerned about, you know, how's the kid gonna do when they get to school and are they gonna make friends? And you were there when you saw her planning birthday parties for this child. And, uh, special little treats and worrying about if they were struggling with something uh, in the family. And you saw her care and concern in every step of the way that she nurtured this child. Imagine you saw that as a fly on the wall and then someone came to you and they said, that mum doesn't care about that child. How would we respond? We would say, I think you must be talking about a different mother here because the mum I've just been watching cares deeply for this child. She cares about this child more than she cares about herself. 
When we read the Bible, what we're told is that God knows our name. That there are, what, 7.6 billion people on the planet and he knows our name. He's got it written on the palm of his hand. That he knew us before he made the world. That he's counted every single hair on our head. That all the days of our life are written in his book before a single one of them came to be. That before a word is on our tongue, he knows it completely. He knows us inside out. That not only does he know our name, but he gives us the name to call him. And the name is Father, Abba, Daddy. That he's adopted us, signed and sealed a covenant with his own blood that we would come and be part of a permanent, everlasting, forever relationship with him. Now, sometimes a little voice comes into our heads. I know it does for me. And it says to us, God doesn't really care about you. Now, how might we respond to that? What, what I've been trying to do of late is say, well, we must be talking about a different God because the one I'm seeing in here cares about me deeply and he wants me he asks me encourages me urges me invites me to bring him those things that cause me fear that cause me anxiety there's no prayer no request too big for his mighty power and there is nothing too small for his fatherly care how are we going to navigate our way through this fog we're going to pray our way through it present our requests. Finally, a third thing that for me has, I hope, kept me on the right track over the last couple of weeks is what Paul says when he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Um, that's been a strong marker for me in this time because um, I don't know about you, but when I'm under pressure, I tend to be less gentle. And what I want to become during these days is more like Jesus. And Jesus, as Mike said last week, he describes himself, his heart, as a gentle heart. Now, I used to think that gentleness was weakness. And now I understand it can't be that because there was nothing weak about Jesus. He was incredibly strong. Now I get a little more that gentleness is actually strength tamed. Think of it like a giant, powerful warhorse that has been tamed and trained to the point where it has a little child gently on its back. You've got all of that strength, but it's been harnessed. In a way, maybe gentleness could be described as power channeled by kindness and channeled through kindness. And one of the ways that I think we could grow in our gentleness is to start with taming that part of us that James, in James chapter 3, says um, really dictates often the course of our life, which is the tongue, our words, our mouths. James says it's one of the hardest things to tame, and yet if we can do that, it's like the bit that goes in the mouth of a horse and you can steer the whole animal just through that one little bit. If we can, if we can practice gentleness with our words, what a difference it would make. Paul says, be that your gentleness be what's obvious about you, your kindness, in other words, your compassion. 
really practically for me because I've found in the last couple of weeks as I've been under stress, I've ended up snapping at the boys and saying things I regretted, speaking to Beth sometimes and saying things that I shouldn't have said or that I've regretted. And I've been trying to work out how do I grow in this? I have to pray, that's been the big thing. But also another thing that's really helped is for me just to say to myself, if I can't say this kindly, I'm not gonna say it. And we'll have to have hard conversations, all of us, because that's life, you know, with colleagues, with bosses, with patients, with pupils. We'll have to have difficult conversations. And so it's not about avoiding saying things that are difficult to say sometimes and saying things firmly, but it's saying it kindly as well. Uh, there's a little acronym that Mike has, has been saying for years that I, I have always found quite helpful. Mike? Okay, it's... Uh... <coughs> <coughs> is not the cough. It's before you speak, think. T, is it true? H, is it helpful? I, is it inspiring? N, is it necessary? K, is it kind? If it's not all those things, I was told years ago, shut your mouth. <laughs> all right, so to finish. How are we going to continue to navigate through what is a confusing time? I want to suggest we can do it through some of these markers, at least for the next little while. First of all, rejoice in the Lord. Savour who he is. We can never lose him. Secondly, uh, give him our requests. Bring our cares to him. Let's pray our way through it, one thing at a time. There's nothing too small for his care. And finally, uh, as much as we can. Let's let our default behaviour be gentleness. We'll probably need to ask him to help us with that, but let's make that our ambition. Amen. <laughs>